you know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of your career and life, to starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is the Own Your Career, Own Your Life podcast. Are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the show. I just want to say first and foremost, thank you to our friend Joseph Jaffe, who connected us the other day on Clubhouse, where we were running a room with him and Robert Cialdini, uh, of course, the author of the well-known author of the book Power of Influence. And uh, you, uh, I've, I've been really impressed with all the stuff that I've seen from you. And I know you've got this book, Say Less, Get More, where you've quoted uh, Bob Cialdini and some of the work he's done on influence. So we'll just start there. Like, how was it? What was it like? to be on that clubhouse stage or staring, sharing a stage with him after following and, and quoting his work as you have. I was just trying not to be a sloppy fangirl because <laughs> I've been talking about uh, Cialdini's work for years. I've been quoting him and using him as a lesson in my MBA classes and in my keynotes. And um, anybody who's been in an audience has heard me say his name. And I, I think I should be responsible for having sold a lot of his books in Canada as well. So um, that was a, that was a really fun moment. Yeah, it was really cool for me too. I haven't been following his work as closely, but obviously heard his name in the book many times and to be able to share that stage and be up there and um, be able to help and, and share some information, and inspire some people was really cool. And I know you've been helping a lot of people and I'm excited to dive into this topic of negotiations because I am someone who has a big network. I build relationships easily. I, I, I have a lot of friends, um, but part of that is because I'm a total people pleaser and I have a hard time, you know, shutting my mouth, asking or asking for things that I want or need and closing my mouth and, and being good at negotiations. And I have a following who is looking for ways to improve, accelerate their careers. And, you know, part of getting what, where you want to go in your career is mastering communication, influence and negotiation. So I'm eager to dive into that. Before we get started, though, uh, I heard you were nicknamed the negotiator as a child. So uh, where, where did that come from? How did that come up, come about? It came from my dad. It's a true story. Um, to this day, he still uses it every once in a while. So my sister and I have very different personalities. I'm very assertive and she's not. And the same goes for a lot of others in my family. So we're, we're kind of extremes in the family. And so if I was the one stepping up and saying, we want to go do something, because I grew up in, if you've ever seen the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, that was our lives, like the strict big fat Greek dad. So you had to negotiate your way out of the house. And so if I ever spoke out, my dad would be like, we don't need to hear from you negotiator. It was just always that kind of moment. He even did it recently when I was home visiting with the family. He's like, yeah, yeah, we know negotiator. We don't need to hear from you right now. Yeah. Um, so it's just something that stuck. And I feel like it became a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point. Everybody assumed I'd go into law because yeah. of it, yeah. um, but I kind of did a surprise left turn for them. <laughs> Well, I'm glad it's worked out and uh, it's making me think. My daughter is also quite a negotiator. She's always negotiating everything. Uh, just the other night, she was being a little disruptive and we decided we were gonna turn off the movie we, we were watching. And she said, look, I won't make another sound the rest of the movie. If I do, then I won't watch TV for a month. And we're like, whoa, <laughs> really? So I'm like, so intrigued by that. I was like, okay, there's 30 minutes left in this movie. Are you sure? She's like, yeah, definitely. And so we did it and she was quiet the rest of the movie. Um, she's always offering us deals like that and like making deals and negotiating with us. It's it's so funny. So I was wondering where, where she might end up with those skills. So tell me, um, so you didn't become a lawyer. You know, what did your career look like and, and how did you end up doing what you do today? 
So I always ended up in sales centric roles. And part of that was also because I grew up in family business. So, you know, we, I grew up in the back of a restaurant and scooping ice cream and, and all of that kind of fun stuff. And then ended up in retail with my parents as well. So I was working in a high school job where I was selling leather coats at the mall. And my dad said, you need to quit your job next month. And I said, why? And he said, because we're going to open up our own leather and fur boutique. And I said, what do you know about leather and fur? And he said, I know I have a smart kid. <laughs> that was his oh. answer. So we went from food and fast food into this retail business that I was teaching my parents. So there was always like, there was always a hunger for that and an understanding of customer relations and all of that kind of stuff. And then I tried to get the hell away from family business and yeah. I went to school and I did my undergrad and then my MBA in organization behavior. And from there, I was recruited into the corporate manufacturing world. So I worked for L'Oreal for a number of years and then a food company for a number of years. And, and I was the one that was negotiating with Walmart. That was my job. That was my specialty. Mm. And so obviously they are known to be very tough negotiators in the industry to this day. Um, and then a company was brought in by one of my employers to teach us to be better negotiators, to help us handle those situations. And it was the facilitator who said, you should really be doing what we do. And I was mm. in my 20s because I did all this stuff really early. And he said, no, seriously we should be, you should be doing what we do. And I was like, yeah, sure. Someday when I've got right. more experience. And it was, it took him a year to convince me to come on board. And then I loved it. I loved, I was training everybody from the CEO of the company down to the junior account manager on how to be more effective at what you do. And then that evolved even further when people went, it's great that you trained our team, but we have a hundred million on the line or we have a billion on the line or we have 10,000 a second moving through our business. How do we manage this specific situation? Mm. And then I got to get involved at the boardroom table, planning out strategies, power positions, all of that fun stuff. Again, the stuff I was doing when I was back in the manufacturing world, I got to play in the consulting world. And so it just kind of evolved from there. And you know, one thing leads to another and then HarperCollins starts knocking with books and people start asking you to be on stages and yeah. you start getting on bigger platforms and sharing things. And, and that's how you and I somehow connected. Right, as well. Exactly. You just one one relationship leads to another. You never know. So is that where um, how you make most of your money today is you are kind of doing training, consulting, and you actually get you have clients that bring you in to help them with big negotiations or strategize on how to handle those? Yeah, I'd say now the majority of my time goes to keynote speaking, which I just love because I can reach so many more people and help so many more people. Um, I still, though, take requests for for training and for consulting uh, from time to time, which it's hard for me to say no because it's just fun. And it's good for me, too, to keep my finger on the pulse of some of the challenges that people are facing. And even the book is full of those live case studies, those real life examples that I dealt with on a, on a day to day basis in my world and coaching others and so on. So. Um, I do a little bit of everything, but I'd say the majority is in the keynote speaking world now. Oh, that's really cool. Uh, one more question on your career, and we'll get into some of the negotiation stuff. Uh, it sounds like you're running your own business now as a, as a speaker, consultant. Uh, how do you like that? And what do you see as kind of the pros and cons compared with working for a company, which you've done in the past? I know a lot of people are always weighing those options. Yeah, I, I ended up in business for myself accidentally. So <laughs> it was it was because I quit a job. I just quit a job that wasn't serving me anymore and a culture that wasn't working with my values. And, and so I left. But it was my clients who went, 
hey, when are you going to come back and work with us again? And I said, I don't work for that company anymore. They said, we didn't hire the company. We hired Fotini. Mm. And so I took a break. I traveled the world. I enjoyed myself. And then when they were still asking that question, I was like, okay, I'll just do this favor for you until I have to get a real job. Because <laughs> I'd built such great relationships with my clients yeah. that I was, I, I'm friends with many of them to this day. I go to their Christmas parties and things like that. So it was just one gig after another that led to, oh, can you get on our national conference stage? Can you do this other thing for us? Can you just train our, our people? We need a, a simple training, not a four-day extensive thing. Yeah. And I just kept taking those requests. And before I knew it, it was indeed a real job. So I love the fact that I have these deep-rooted relationships with people. I've been with some who have brought me to four different companies. Like when they quit a job, they bring me mm. into the next one. But I miss the camaraderie of having a team. I miss, I, I'm a lone ranger in a sense because I'm, I'm moving from place to place. But I and I miss having to getting to be in a room and whiteboarding with someone and bouncing ideas off of them. And I have some really wonderful colleagues all over the world who are in my industry, who we brainstorm with in London and Australia, and they're amazing people. But to have someone that is like a full time team member who's sharing a brain with you, that's the kind of stuff I miss. But yeah, autonomy of making your own decisions and, and having control over your calendar, it's kind of yeah. hard to trade off. Yeah, I'm with you. I absolutely love uh, working on my own and making those decisions and operating my own business and the risks and rewards that come with that. Uh, every now and then I miss uh, a good corporate cafeteria, but those all got shut down in 2020 anyway. So, you know, <laughs> you know, they're not around. Um, this is really cool. Okay. So I want to get into negotiations. Um, we are recording this live on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. So if you happen to be watching this live and you have a question uh, for Fotini or me, feel free to drop that in the chat, uh, post your questions. We'll be happy to get to those. Uh, all right. So Fotini, what do most people get wrong about negotiations? So I think, I mean, the, the title of the book kind of speaks to it. It's the yeah. fact that we assume that the person who's going to be really great at negotiation needs to be quick on their feet and is that fast talking salesperson that we see in the movies. And, you know, people will say to me all the time, oh, your life must be so exciting. It must be like that show Suits. And I'm like, actually, people call me in. So it doesn't get to that point. Hmm. Um, so I do find it's the people who do say less who get a lot more out of every single negotiation. And there's study after study that is proving that true to be true. Um, you know, people who literally use more pauses in their language get more out of situations. People who will take the time to just sit and think first will have fewer of those moments of regret that make them go, oh God, why did I just do that? Um, so I think that's the big thing is like people assume you've got to be fast talking, you've got to be extroverted, you've got to be quick on your feet. Yeah. The reality is it's quite the opposite. It's the people who take their time, who are more mm. considered, who actually are more effective at it. Okay, so this is great. So I happen to be a pretty strong extrovert. I love talking to people. I was someone who often in my teens and 20s was sticking my foot in my mouth. And I've gotten better at that, but I still am very uncomfortable with the silence. And I always feel like I've got to ask that next question or insert a comment. So how does, for someone like me, it sounds like this actually might serve introverts better. For someone like me, how do we get better at that so that we're not um, you know, ruining things by talking too much? Well, you actually named one of the coping mechanisms and one of them is questions. So if mm. you aren't good at shutting up, if you are so uncomfortable with the pauses, use a question, almost pass the baton to them to fill that pause instead of you being in that position. Because I think everybody can agree that um, that knowledge is power. 
right? And so if everybody knows that, if you're the one doing the talking, you're giving away all of that knowledge and all of that power. Mm -hmm. So what can you do to get them talking? Not only to collect more information, which is going to be valuable, but also it makes them feel good. It's good for their ego because they feel as though they're now much more important. If you're the one asking the question, however, you're actually in charge of the conversation because you're steering it in the direction you want it to go. So that is one of the most easy ways to to take control of that muscle that makes you go, I must say something. Just say enough so that they can be the ones doing more of the talking and you can say a little bit less. Okay, so I'm feeling better about this because I do tend to lead with curiosity. I like to ask a lot of questions. Uh, Sometimes I think I ask too many questions. I never get around to explaining what I do or my side of things. Is there a point where you could be asking too much and you need to be able to state what you're offering or, or what you're bringing to the table? Yeah. I mean, I, everything in moderation, right. Mm-hmm. Is, is kind of the mantra. And so you want to make sure you understand what they want, but then they also have to know what value you're bringing to the table. So there's got to be an exchange if you're going to have a collaborative negotiation, but even if you're going to have a competitive negotiation, the type where you're like buying a souvenir on a beach in Mexico, or you're at a car dealership and it's all centered around money. Those are the situations again, where you still want to get them to do lots of talking, but then the time will come and you have to make a proposal. And that's where you want to make sure you're putting your proposal on the table first. Collect the information you need to make sure it's a strong proposal and a good proposal. But then you want to make sure you're the one going first and anchoring. Here's what you need to do in order to make this deal work with me. And that can put you in in an advantageous position. So it's balancing. Get enough information from them from their talking and then use that moment to put your proposal out there. That, that's interesting because I feel like I've heard many times that uh, you don't want to be the first one to say a number or give a number, right? Especially if you're negotiating on a price or a salary, because if you give your number away and theirs might be higher or lower or whatever, that there could be a negative reaction or it might eliminate opportunities. So you're saying you want to be the first one to put something out there to anchor them to a number. Yeah, I know there are two schools of thought on this. Most of what I've read on allowing the other person to go first is quite outdated. It was Mm -hmm. pre-Google. And so I'd say one of the only excuses we have to allow the other person to go first is when you yourself are not prepared. These days, you have information at your fingertips. You have so, like, if you're going to a car dealership, you know exactly what used cars go for. You know where the next car dealership is down the street and so on and so forth. You are so well prepared. Why would you allow them the opportunity to imprint something on your subconscious brain and lock it in there for you? There are some very rare extenuating circumstances where it would make more sense for them to go first, like a hostage situation. It would be Mm -hmm. weird for you to offer something first. But in most situations, 99% of what we deal with on a daily basis, whether it's salary or house listing or any of those things, when you have enough information to go in prepared or with the knowledge that you need, you have the benefit of using the subconscious brain to your advantage when you go first. And there is study after study that shows that usually the person who goes first ends up getting the best deal. Mm. So earlier you mentioned the concept of anchoring, and then you you talked about letting if you let them go first, it imprints a number on your brain. I'm really familiar with this concept. I've, I've studied a few things around it. A lot of people may not be. Can you explain this idea of anchoring more? Yeah. So the easiest way for me to explain it, when I talk to my keynote audience, is I ask everybody to not think about pink elephants. Whatever you do, (laughs) don't think about a giant pink elephant. Please do not think about pink elephants. What are you thinking about? (laughs) I'm trying to think of a little green elephant right now, but, uh, but the pink elephant is there. 
But that's just it. The second I say it, it's on your brain, whether you consciously recognize it or not. Your brain is doing so much work to undo that pink elephant. And it's almost like when you're driving, for those of us who know how to drive, um, you steer in the direction where your head is going. So if I'm looking, you know, in the other direction, that's where I'm also headed. But mm. that's what those anchors can do for us as well. So, and another analogy is simply an anchor on a boat. You know, we drop the anchor for a reason and the boat can only drift so far because it depends on how long you've let that anchor go. And in negotiation, the same is true. Once a number is imprinted on your brain, it's much harder to undo that, that mental impression on your subconscious mind. So we use the term of anchoring for the person yeah. who goes first because the boat analogy is just so perfect for it. Yeah. Can you give me an example of how that might work in say like a salary negotiation? Yeah. So um, I know what my students, when I talk to MBA students and other people who are in that age group and people who are, you know, venturing out to negotiate a salary, they always dread the question. What do I say when they say, what are your expectations? Mm, what are your and salary like, expectations? Right. Yeah. And I'm like, the answer is, what are your expectations? <laughs> so again, if you have done the research, if you know what um, you know what those things are like on the market, if you know someone with your experience level in your industry and so on is getting paid X amount out there in the universe, thanks to Payscale or Glassdoor or conversations that you're having with peers in your industry, then you can go in there confidently and say, you know, based on my research, now this is credible. This is objective information, not here's my opinion. It is based on this credible information that is out there in the universe. Here's what I would expect for a role like mine or for someone with my experience level here. I'd love to know more about how you view it. Mm, okay. So you're coming in with, with research and you're putting a number out there and now you're anchoring them to that number because they may have been thinking something much lower and thinking they're thinking, well, now we've got to come up a little bit to get to that. Uh, and if they get you for anything less than that, they're happy versus the thinking exactly. about the number that they were starting with. Exactly. And everybody's fear is what if I say a number that's too low and they would have right. been giving you more? Well, if you've done your homework, it's unusual for you to be doing that. More than anything, you're pulling them up versus them pulling you down. Um, so if you have done that preparation, that's the key part of this whole equation, then you can go in there credibly, ask for something a little more aspirational. Because the other tr trick here is most people will look at what are average salaries. If you go in there quoting average, my question to you is, are you an average person? If you've no. made it this far in the, yeah, right. If you've made it this far in the, you know, uh, interview process and the selection process and so on, it's probably because you're not average. So why would you choose the average? Choose the aspirational side of that range of your research. And that'll be the number that you go in there with. And then if they go, look, that's too much for us. You can just ask a simple question and go, how close can you get to that figure? Now you're still anchored here and they have to pull you away from it, which yeah. is much in a much better place for you versus you trying to drag them out of their side of the, the anchoring of the bargaining. Mm, okay. Interesting. Uh, it reminds me, I haven't done a ton of this salary negotiations, but very early in my career, I applied for a job and they offered me the job and they mentioned a salary that mm -hmm. I thought was pretty low. And I came back with a salary much higher thinking I would anchor them to that and we would meet in the middle. And as soon as I offered that, I, I mentioned the higher number, they said, yeah, sure. And they took it. And then I was <laughs> like, should I have said an even higher number than that? It was really bizarre. And so you're always wondering, right, if you're leaving money on the table, but I still feel like it went pretty well. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that you even counter it is a good time because so many people would just go, oh, that's what they're offering. I guess that is the most that they have to offer. And that's a huge mistake when it comes to salary negotiations. I I, I had a, a conversation with a pharmaceutical company a couple of years ago with someone in HR, and we were talking about salary negotiations. And she was like, I'm so glad you tell people that there's not a massive you know, discrepancy that these days people are much more transparent. She mm. goes, because when people come in here expecting massive leaps of five figures from what I've offered, there's only a little bit of room. And all I heard was there's a little bit of room. So yeah. they're, they're offering you something and usually they hold a little something back to give you that extra satisfaction. These mm. days, what I'm hearing more of is it's a bonus, a signing bonus of some kind. Yeah. People will write to me and ask for advice and they'll go, I tried to get them higher. They wouldn't budge on the salary, but they did give me a signing bonus. I said, it's probably because they were being quite transparent with you in the first place about what they had to offer because there's so much information out there in certain industries where they don't really have room to go, let me lowball you and see what happens. Uh, and so the fact that they even get these sign signing bonuses is a really great opportunity to go, if I didn't ask, I wouldn't have gotten anything else. That's right. The worst they can say is no. Uh, but on that note, you know, we, we want to have a, a do our research. I'm glad you mentioned that and come in maybe with a higher number to anchor them. But is there a risk that if we come in too high, that people go, oh, this person thinks too highly of themselves or they're too expensive for us or we just can't deal with them, they just walk away? Yeah, there's always a risk. You can mitigate those risks, however, by making sure that you're not pie in the sky. If you've mm. looked, for example, and the number is uh, the average salary is 100,000 and you're going in there asking for 170, they're going to go, who is this person? Who do they think you are? Right. Um, and so that would be ridiculous. Now, what the actual number is, what percentage, there's no magic number to go, okay, right. ask for 20% more, ask for 30% yeah. more. I can't say that. You have to look at the total context, but you have to go, what is my gut telling me? If I were to ask somebody else, would they say I'm being ridiculous? But you want to be a little bit aspirational. The other critical element of that to make sure they, they don't think you're just a greedy jerk, because a lot of the women who talk to me are really worried about them rescinding the offer. Right. And that is a risk because women are indeed treated differently in negotiations. Mm. Study after study shows us that too. And I've got plenty of anecdotal evidence as well. Yeah. So the key there is making sure that you're using language that is cooperative. Mm. And so it, how close can you get to that figure as opposed to here's what I, here's what you need to do in order to make I this work. This. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So we talked about saying less and the pause and we talked about anchoring. Um, what are some other mistakes that you see people making in negotiations often? I'd say one of them is the mindset. So I love what you said earlier. You mentioned going in with curiosity. Mm. And I think that can be something that can be so advantageous in negotiation. Because if you're going in closed and going, it's got to be my way or the highway, or I need to puff out my chest and be super confident and all of that kind of stuff, it's going to be very difficult to make any progress with somebody. But if you go in there curious, going, what else can I learn about this person? Or what else is on the table that I might not have seen before? You could be opening up all sorts of opportunities. Um, for creative solution, for more complex solutions that, that can make you much richer and reduce your stress and vice versa. But yeah. if you go in with a very closed mindset, it's likely going to be a much more combative situation and you're not going to have as many options. Going in with curiosity means you're opening up the world to opportunities for brainstorming and all sorts of things that will make the conversation such that it's going to feel like they're wanting to work with you instead mm -hmm. of wanting to work against you. Yeah. And they see that you lead with curiosity, which for me, if I'm hiring someone, I love curiosity. I think it's one of the top traits of a leader, a great leader and someone who's going to be successful in whatever they're doing, because 
they're going to keep their their desire to keep learning as much as they can about a situation and and improve. So in your book, you you talk about starting by assessing where you are and and maybe how good you are at influence and negotiations, so you know where you can improve. How do we where do we start? How do we get that do that assessment to kind of figure out where we are in this spectrum? So this the spectrum is all about like what type of negotiation am I dealing with? So understanding mm. the context, you know, what am I walking into right now? Is this a car type of thing where it's all about cash and nothing else? Is it a job offer scenario where it's a hundred percent commission and nothing more? Or is it something where they can do some creative stuff with other budgets and they can pay for um, parking or they can give me personal development or they can give me mentorship that's going to help accelerate my growth here and get me to a higher level much faster. So it's understanding what is the total context instead of going in again with this kind of tunnel vision view of I'm just going to make this assumption that everything is going to be a combative type of situation where it's all about cash and nothing more. So it's looking at what type of relationship am I dealing with here? How much opportunity for creativity and complexity is there? You also want to make sure you're not making false assumptions because some people are super comfortable with the cash only stuff. It's really competitive. And some people want win-win in every single scenario they walk into. But if I'm walking into a negotiation with someone who's not capable of win-win, who's always super competitive, mm. then I need to manage my own expectations and behave accordingly so that I'm not being taken advantage of. Um, and I'd say, you know, certain political figures have lent themselves to that stereotype quite well. So you need to prepare yourself for that instead of mm. allowing them to take advantage of that, um, of your giving nature or of your flexible nature. So there's moments where you have to go, I might be more comfortable in this flexible zone, but I need to learn how to operate in this more rigid zone too. Yeah, you're you're leading right into and already addressing the next question I was going to ask you, which is, um, what do we need to know about the people we're communicating or negotiating with? So it sounds like we need to understand their style, um, and is there things we can do to kind of figure that out early on in a in a conversation or a negotiation? Yeah, I'd say one of the one of the biggest aha moments that people have when they walk away from one of my keynotes is I talk about perspective and it's understanding where are they coming from? What kind of pressures are they facing? What are some of the objectives they're trying to accomplish? What is valuable to them? Don't make the assumption that what is valuable to you is going to be valuable to them. Don't go in, go in there saying, here's what I need to get out of this when you haven't given any thought to what do they need to get out of this and what is in their power to give to you in that moment. So understanding what's in their wheelhouse, what's in their capabilities and so on, what influence do they have in the organization? Those are critical elements. When I'm talking to organizations who hire me to help them through those high stakes negotiations, they go, they go, I've got a massive global retailer breathing down my neck or this major bank is about to pull the plug on a deal that we have going on. I'm going to talk to them about who specifically are you mm -hmm. dealing with? You're not dealing with an organization. You're dealing with an individual within that organization. Is that person on the brink of getting promoted or fired? Do they need this to go really, really well? Or do they think they can do work without you? What kind of pressures is that individual facing? How much influence do they have? Are they truly the decision maker? Or are they in the ear of the person who's truly making the decisions? And they're a conduit for those messages that you need to get to. It can get so complex, but just asking those questions, doing your homework in advance, looking yeah. at the history. You know, if you know someone who's negotiated with them before, and I mean, I talk about this in the retail world all the time. Buyers have been in their seats for a really long time. Somebody you know has dealt with them before. Mm. What are they like? What is their history? What is their pattern of behavior? You can find out a ton of stuff before you even walk in the room with most folks. Interesting. Okay, speaking of that, 
In your book, you talk about developing and fostering excellent client relationships and networks, which is something I'm really big on. I've got a couple chapters in my book about the importance of building your network, um, important importance of building relationships. So I wonder if you can expound on that a little bit, because I feel like that's a that's a big factor in negotiations. Yeah. So, I mean, I have an entire section on the book titled People Over Spreadsheets, <laughs> because mm -hmm. Negotiations are not done on spreadsheets in most cases. Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, AI is making some progress, but even so, it's still people who are dealing with people. And I can tell you, I said with my own business, people didn't come to me because I was giving them different rates than than other folks that I'd worked for in the past or that I'm much cheaper than everybody else on the market. I'm not. They didn't come to me because I was doing them special favors. They came to me because they had a relationship with me and they trusted me. And so we want to deal with people that we trust. We want to find a way to negotiate with the people that we think are going to be more fun to negotiate with or, or easier to deal with. So I'll look for ways to do a deal with you and I'll look for ways to get out of that that person who's annoying the crap out of me. Yeah. Um, you know, that's where I talk a lot about Cialdini stuff and I talk about likability. And so one of the big mistakes that is often made in negotiation is people assume I'm just going to do this thing that they want because I want them to like me. I'll give them this extra thing because I want them to like me. I'll mm -hmm. give them this extra thing because they're going to like me and they're going to want to close the deal. That's not why people like you. According to Cialdini, they like you for three reasons. We like people who are similar to us, who have something mm -hmm. in common with us. We like people people who pay us genuine compliments. And we like people who are cooperative. And so because I was exhibiting all of those things, not intentionally, but I was doing it with all of my clients, that's why they wanted to keep dealing with me. They're like, we like dealing with you. Mm -hmm. And so we want to keep finding ways to deal with you. We'll look for more budget to be able to deal with you right. versus dealing with somebody else. So those, those relationships are always underestimated and are so valuable, uh, especially when it comes to the higher the stakes, the more important it's going to be to get that person on board with you. Yeah, so important. And, and I love that you dig into the intricacies of that and, and quoting Cialdini, um, because and I talk a little bit about that in my book as well, the importance of the network to get to that next job or client opportunity. I think back across my whole career, and I've had a lot of different jobs across my career before I went off to become an entrepreneur and started running my own business. And almost every job I've ever had has come from a relationship. I've never really like applied for something online and gotten it, not since, I don't know, 2004. It's been a long time. And then I think about the clients I have now, You know, some companies have started to bring me in this year to speak from my book, and they've all been personal relationships who said, hey, we wanna work with you, not something like, oh, we're reaching out to 10 speakers, we wanna compare your rate to others. It's just, we wanna work with you, what's your rate? And that comes from building a great relationship, not from, uh, spreadsheets, like you said, people, I like that people over spreadsheets. So I, I think I'm living proof of that. And I talk to a lot of people all the time that are doing the same thing. They're building businesses based on relationships. And I think a lot of people as important as it is, as it is, a lot of people really undervalue that. Yeah. And I think entrepreneurs are living proof of that because unless you get your foot in the door some way, it's somebody's holding the door for you. You can't always mm -hmm. be bashing it down. And that starts with those, with those relationships, which I think is so incredible. So um, as we get close to wrapping this up, I want to open, leave some space for you. What have we not covered? What is, what's something else that people need to know about um, negotiations or entering that conversation, whatever it may be, to make sure they're, they're doing it the right way? I'd say one of the things that people take for granted is 
that confidence is such a big factor when you're going into any type of negotiation. One of my favorite studies that I like to talk about is a 2013 Harvard study. And I'm not going to bore you to tears with all of it, but I will tell you that um, in this study, the people were asked to sing a song in front of a group. They were actually asked to sing Journeys Don't Stop Believing. Oh, love that and song. I think we're probably not as shy around a microphone as most people, but right. it is the number one fear for yeah. most of the population. Yeah. And so they split them into three groups and they said, group number one, despite how you're feeling, I want you to tell yourself that you are feeling anxious. Group number two, I want you to tell yourself that you are excited. Group mm. number three, nothing at all. Right. And what they found was the people who told themselves they were excited, despite how they may have actually been feeling, outperformed the other two groups, according to a computer that measured volume and pitch. They also outperformed them on a math test and a speech test. They were perceived as more persuasive, really, more confident, and more persistent, which basically means they're changing their cognitive abilities by just reframing their brains. By going in there and reframing that, that anxiety as excitement, you can channel that racing heartbeat or the, you know, the energy that's going through your body into something that's going to serve you so much better. And then another study in 2011 showed us that, um, that anxious negotiators, those who had watched the movie Psycho in this case, ended up negotiating deals that were 12% less financially attractive than neutral negotiators who hadn't watched the movie. So that means you can take that anxious stuff and turn it into excitement and get better results. Or if you go into a negotiation and you are feeling or even looking anxious, according to the study, you're going to get suboptimal results. Because if someone sees you and you're like, you're this nervous Nelly who looks like they're, they're super concerned, they're going to go, oh, this is, this is somebody weak. I'm going to jump all over that. Your weakness becomes their excuse to get more aggressive. And so having that air of confidence about you, reframing your brain into, I'm excited for this. I'm excited to share what I know about this. I'm excited to finally have a conversation with someone. I'm excited to learn about this person. When I'm talking to students, it's, I'm excited to finally put all of that studying to good use. Any of those things can change outcomes for you. And that can mean some super high stakes when it comes to negotiations. So that's the one thing that I, I always love that people take away from many of the talks that I do. I love that. That's so important. And people really don't understand, undervalue the language that we use with ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, that we can reframe situations, get ourselves excited about situations. That study is fascinating. Although you have to be careful what you talk about, because we just got a comment from Sean Curtis, who said, let's hear you both <laughs> sing it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if we're going to do any singing today, but maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll get back on live and do some singing uh, another time. I do. I do love that song. Um, and it's interesting because we we can reframe and get ourselves excited. It reminds me, uh, I've done a lot of public speaking and facilitating over the last decade. And something I've I've shared with a lot of people as advice is that whether you're nervous or not, nobody's going to know it until you show them, right? And so yeah. if you pick up that pen and you're holding that pen while you're speaking in front of a group and you're going to be fidgeting with that pen, that's a tell that you're nervous. So put the pen down. Don't hold a pen while yeah. you're speaking in front of a group of people. And they're not going to know, even if you're sweating and it's inside your shirt, right? They're not going to really know unless you show them that or you tell them that. And so I imagine what you're saying is like, it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be anxious. But if you rechannel that and you don't let them necessarily see that, you're going to be a lot more successful. 
Absolutely. And Kelly McGonigal wrote a phenomenal book called The Upside of Stress. It's one of my favorites. And she talked about it when they did studies on students. Because, And I think about these things all the time because I don't have kids of my own, but I have nieces and godchildren and all these people around me that I coach. Yeah. And it was the same with these students. They looked at their heart rates. And when they reframed, their heart rate didn't change, but their outcome did. It was It's really just channeling that energy. Instead of channeling it into the pen, it's channel it into the thinking that you need in order to move forward. Channel it into the excitement of, of projecting to the people that you want to be talking to. So there's there's ways to cope with some of the stresses that come our way. Mm, it also reminds me, um, lately I've been, uh, due to like a health journey I've been through, I've been taking this really disgusting supplement that my herbalist recommended. I have to take it every morning, every morning and every evening. And it's like the most disgusting thing ever, but I take <laughs> it and I, my, my kids are right there. And I'm like, that is the most delicious, amazing thing. And my daughter's like, why are you lying to your, why are you lying? Why are you lying to yourself? And I'm like, look, honey, I'm just trying to convince myself that this is actually good so that it's not as bad. Because when we just, when a situation is already bad and we keep telling ourselves that it's bad, it just makes it worse. So why not, you know, try to reframe it and make it better. It, it still doesn't taste very good, but it has become a little bit easier um, through that reframe. All right, so Fortinia, last question for you. Uh, my book and this show is called Own Your Career, Own Your Life. When you hear that, when you see that, what does that mean to you? Oh, I love it because it so resonates with what I tell people. It's own your presence in that room. Mm. When people tell me they feel powerless when it comes to a negotiation or why would they want to give me that? You need to own your space. You need to own your space in their email inbox. You need to own your space in the fact that they, they are giving you the time of day right now. Time is a precious commodity for all of us. So own your place in their timetable, in that office, your, your physical presence in that room. Uh, and so I love it. When you can own that, the mindset really does change and you get better results. Yeah. And well, kind of just to expound on that a little bit, when you talk about owning your space, owning your presence, what, what do you mean by that? So I love another, I'm going to drop another book on you. I'll fangirl over Dr. Amy Cuddy for a second because she mm. wrote the book called Presence and she introduced us to a concept called power poses. And so I talk a lot mm. about body language and how we could be doing this and people could see us as someone who looks really nervous or yeah. you could do, you know, the Wonder Woman or if you've ever yeah. done a marathon, you do the V for Victor, yeah. you know, all of those things. When you take up more physical space, you're giving the perception to others that you deserve to be there, but you're also doing that same thing where your brain is going to catch up to it. Right. So when you own that physical space, people will see you as somebody formidable. In fact, um, if I go back a couple of career steps ago, when I walked into the room to do this negotiation training where I was poached into doing this for as, as a career, many years later, my boss said to me, you know, I knew I wanted to meet you. I knew I wanted to hire you the second you walked into the room I'm like this could get really awkward. But mm. tell me more. He said, yeah. You walked in wearing this red dress in a sea of guys in black golf shirts, like you owned the joint. And he went, there's somebody I need to get to know. It's no coincidence. I love the color red. Um, but it's that kind of stuff can, that can have a dramatic impact on others and, and your own brain as well. And we both have red on our book covers as well, and both kind of wearing red today. I like it. Uh, Fotini, this is great. The book is called Say Less, Get More, Unconventional Negotiation Techniques to Get What You Want. Uh, it was published just this year, April 2021 by HarperCollins. So go out and get a copy. I imagine it's available on Amazon. Uh, for anybody that wants to reach out, connect with you, follow what you're doing, where else can they go, Fotini? You can follow me at Fotini Icon. I've made it easy so you don't have to spell the whole last name <laughs> on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm giving lots of tips there, even on TikTok these days. Ooh. And of course, on, on LinkedIn. So the website's also FotiniIcon.com.
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for being on. We really appreciate it. Hope you have a great week. I hope you do too. Thanks so much.